We are Dr. Sarah Bone and Dr. Lisa Tartaglia. We are both actively practicing osteopathic physicians, dual boarded in family medicine and hospice and palliative medicine. You Only Die Once is a virtual place for sharing information about serious illness, the end of life process, hospice and palliative medicine with the patient, the family, and the practitioner. You only die once, and we believe it can and should be a good death. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Dr. Tartaglia. I'm Dr. Baum. And today we're going to talk about hospice service failure. That was brought to our attention in a comment from one of our previous videos about service failures. They didn't feel like their, their loved one was taken well care of. They didn't feel like the hospice was attentive. They didn't feel like the medications that were used were appropriate. Mm -hmm. And they felt like they just didn't get the service that they needed. And I know that many people have mm -hmm. commented that they had a bad experience with hospice. And I've had a loved one more than one time with hospice, and I know you've had someone on yes. hospice many times in your life that are personal family members, and we also have experienced service failures by hospice. Yeah, and what happened with me is I was, uh, I had just finished up my residency training, so I became a full-fledged uh, physician, and I was working myself in Florida um, in an inpatient unit. Uh, it was a 16-bed inpatient unit that was in a hospital. So acutely ill patients come to that hospice unit. And really, you're talking hours to days that you have to make an impact. Um, and I received a call from my mom. And it was uh, my father's aunt, my great aunt, and one of the loves of my life. You know, growing up, she never had children. And we she, we got to spend every holiday with her. She was the best baker, a phenomenal gardener, everything. What happened with her is she ended up having a, a ruptured aortic aneurysm. Wow. Yeah. And she was not a surgical candidate, um, which, you know, is another uh, big word that you sometimes hear. A frightening phrase. It's very frightening. Um, so for what happened with my family is she'd gone to the hospital with back pain, um, had this huge aneurysm discovered, and she also had some underlying vascular dementia. So she was not the same you know, Aunt Rosie that we all knew growing up, right? So um, in her dying process, uh, uh, when she was first in initially admitted to hospice, I actually went home. I went, I flew home for like uh, 72 hours and my aunt rallied. I thought, and I took care of her. I was a primary caregiver and I could see how debilitated she was and I tried to get everything in order for her. She ended up living about four weeks, maybe plus or minus um, on hospice. Um, but what happened was, is in her dying process, my mom called me like in a panic, paged me overhead at the hospital is before you had like real cell phones with texting. And I tell my mom, like, call the hospice. They need to come out. Like she's, she sounds like Aunt Rosie's dying. Um, and my mom did, and she was received by a nurse. That's the team manager. And the team manager says to my mom, well, the nurse is busy. And, you know, she can't come out. Now, this is a woman that was getting up, using the bathroom, eating, drinking, and now she began to be actively dying. Her symptoms at that time was she was very, very short of breath, um, and she was starting to have some congestion. So my, my mom was afraid because she was laying flat in a bed. She did not have a hospital bed in place. Um, that was more by choice than um, 
you know, I'm sure the hospice probably offered it. Okay. So, you know, as a hospice physician, I would expect that a nurse go out and assess them. But what they told my mom, which is so shocking, is uh, turn to page 36 of your book that you received upon admission. Wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. And 36 discussed shortness of breath in the dying stages, and it had seven or eight bullet points. And then it also explained with pictures of how to administer the medication that was in that pack that doctors, uh, patients receive, that doctors order and patients and family receive. Some hospices provide what's called a comfort kit Mm -hmm. at the time of admission. And so a lot of times it's just like a little box that's got some seals on it and they'll just tell you to keep this in your refrigerator or on on the counter or in the cupboard. And then if something happens and the nurse comes out, then they're gonna have some emergency medicines that they can use right there in the home. I don't know if they still do comfort kits. I haven't worked for a private hospice Mm -hmm. in a few years since, you know, the, the, the changes and I've got a new employer, but they used to have these comfort kits. I don't know that do now. Yeah. And so this comfort kit was interesting. It was color coordinated and basically was like a recipe, do this, this, and this. And I have to tell you, um, I was very uh, disappointed in um, in that kind of care because uh, we had a tough time um, before that meeting the nurse. Um, when she did come out, she was kind of in a, a condescending tone of voice in discussing things with me because she felt I was a physician and I knew, but I was just there for the 24 to 48 hours that I got to spend with my Aunt Rosie and had to go back to work. So I was not going to be there. So the people that were there caring for her were non-medical people. Mm -hmm. Um, My aunt never saw a physician. Um, It's just not a thing in New Jersey back then. You know, this was in 2005, so a lot has changed. Um, Never met a chaplain, never saw a social worker. And she had been on the, you know, had at least a length of stay of 30 days. So it was just a very um, sad state of affairs. I had to get on the phone um, in the hospital bathroom and coach my mom through uh, the symptom management. This was not her blood relative, so she felt very uncomfortable, I'm sure, giving the medication because there's a stigma that our medication causes death. Yeah, and and that's a service failure, Mm -hmm. but we work for hospice and have worked for hospice for years, and we have a different idea of what hospice service should be like. So service failures are something that we both have encountered, Mm -hmm. but that bad failure that you personally experienced didn't really taint your your impression of hospice, but it motivated her and my bad experience that I'll share with you, motivated me to make sure that the hospices we work for deliver the best service possible because these are people. These are families and facing something that is really frightening at home alone. Yes. And it's so important to have uh, the communication with the team and make sure um, that all these things are covered upon admission. And we we are um, pioneers, I like to say. We are resilient warriors, Mm -hmm. even though I don't really like that word resilient, but we are warriors. And we, um, we will you know, go above and beyond to make sure that our patients have, um, you know, a successful experience 
However, we're only two people of a hospice organization. It, for me, it's kind of a top-down thing. So if you've got a leadership team that is not dedicated and doesn't have that passion mm -hmm. for compassion, then it's going to trickle down to the other team members. And my mine wasn't exactly a service failure. My Yours was definitely a service failure. But my disappointing service was the service that my mom received when she was on hospice my brother was the primary caregiver i would go home on weekends and try to relieve him as best i could and he had given them all my information i had spoken with them because i initiated the phone call to the nurse on two separate occasions they never contacted me they never contacted me while she was on service and she received service for several months and they never contacted me after she passed. And the disappointing thing for me for that is hospice is supposed to provide that bereavement care. They're supposed to contact those immediate family members to find out how are you doing? Let me touch base with you. And you know, I didn't really need anything, but they didn't contact me. That's just, that's absurd. It's so sad. It was very disappointing. And I was working for a hospice at that point in time in mid-Missouri. And, you know, I worked very closely with the bereavement coordinator and with our social worker. And, of course, you know, we're meeting with our entire team on a weekly basis to discuss those patients that are on service. It's required for us to meet every 15 days. So most hospices do it every week. And it's actually every 14 days, and that gives you that 24-hour leeway. So if mm -hmm. there's a, a snowstorm or if the power outage or if there's a hurricane, you can do that by telephone. But CMS requires those primary team members to meet in person and discuss that. And so I know our bereavement coordinator was intimately involved with every patient on service and that they did not provide that service to my brother or myself was very disappointing. Wow. They didn't contact us. No, that's really sad because especially as an insider, we know it's required for a year, for 12 months, mm -hmm. they're supposed to maintain contact with us. So there are so many places where hospice can fail. And, and I know that I don't like using the failure word, but it's an organization and it's a service. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a really crucial and important service. So I don't mind saying that they failed. They prefer to say it's an opportunity for improvement. Well, that's fine. You do need to improve and you've been given an opportunity to improve. But this is such a crucial thing. Dr. T and I have a zero tolerance. And also there in, in Florida, we have a lot of high standards of, of um, touch points with a physician, which I know in some states that does not happen. And even today, it doesn't happen. Just it's just, just the infrastructure. And there's a lot of um, that there's a lot of patients that are uh, hospices that are understaffed. Um, however, for us, we had a touch point where my expectation was that um, the physician met the patient who was stable, meaning no symptoms, within 72 hours. If they were unstable, they had to go out and do an initial evaluation within 24 hours. And when I was a medical director, I held that standard. I held it as well as I expect the physicians that were working under me to hold it. So if the physician leadership and the executive leadership, which is usually non-medical, if they have that high standard and that high expectation, then usually those staff members will try to meet that expectation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And I think we want to like go over some points of where things go wrong. Like, you know, what are some things that we always hear about? Um, some points and some bones of contention with patients and families. I think communication is a big one because there's sometimes a misalignment of goals. And so the patient goal is not necessarily the same goal as what the hospice has. And maybe not all family members are on board with it. And so the, the understanding and the goals of what can be done, what should be done, and what will be done, I think sometimes there's a goal misalignment, and that is mm -hmm. a real major source of where sometimes those service failures come in, is maybe it's a weekend crew, and the nurse that's coming or the aide that shows up on the weekend doesn't realize what that patient goal is. Exactly. And then also, um, there's, you know, there's a capacity change that occurs on the weekend. Um, so you may not get the, the same uh, staff member that you will have during the week. And then I take it even a step further with the misalignment of goals. I'm now on the palliative side. So I take care of patients that aren't truly, um, not everyone's hospice eligible, and some of them don't even know they're palliative. So I always tell my um, ARNPs that I'm working with and collaborating with is make sure you have the clear discussions of why we're making that referral to hospice. So it will further um, uh, decrease service delay. And what I mean by that is sometimes my ARNPs don't really explain the hospice Medicare benefit and a nurse comes barreling in because they want to admit and they're like, oh, you're going to hospice. We're going to stop this. And they have no idea what's involved in the umbrella of hospice. Right. And so the information needs to be communicated. And then patients need to be given that time mm -hmm. to, to digest that information, to process that information, because it, it's a, it sounds like it's a big step. And so some families are further along than mm -hmm. others, and some need more time to accept that and need more reassurance that they are going to be cared for. But as Dr. T said, if you've got you know good communication with the family member and you got a good educated nurse mm -hmm. practitioner and a good educated nurse that come in and they don't barrel over the patient, but they listen to them about what their concerns are, what their goals are. And then the family also gives that same uh, courtesy back to the staff to find out what can you do for me mm -hmm. and you know what am I willing to accept, right. then there's better alignment of those goals. Right. Another point that we should make is the no-show. I mean, that's this is the oh, worst, is when patients and families are waiting all day for that nurse to come in, and I'm saying that nurse, but it could be an aide, it could be a social worker, where they're gonna be coming into the home. Um, it's a big deal, because what I always tell people, I, I've done home visits my entire career, we're in their home. This is not our home. It's not our home to judge their cleanliness. It's not our place to, you know, discuss, you know, how many pets they have, what they're eating, drinking, how the, how it looks. We're in their home. So we need to be consistent. And if we're running into a problem, the best thing to do is pick up the phone and say, hey, you know, I'm going to be late. I'm going to be late. Or if you are going to no show, have the communication to the team. Yeah. So somebody could somebody let the can family know and you can maybe see if another team member can, um, because things do come up, mm -hmm. you know, the staff member going out might have had a flat tire, 
Uh, they may need fuel. They may have gotten a rock that hit their window and, you know, now it's not safe for them to drive. Maybe the weather conditions changed. But please call. Now, I know the cable guy, he will tell you I'll be there between 8 and 12 or I'll be there between 12 and 5. So you just kind of have to sit and wait. And I don't think that we should hold the hospice staff to a tighter time no. zone than, than, you know, morning or afternoon. Right. No, but I just feel that um, you should be consistent of your word. It's a, yeah. it, th this is customer service based, you know, we are a team and you should have a team approach. I mean, it, you know, I work for a hospice where all deaths had to be attended by a team member, mm -hmm. which also meant that you were not allowed to leave that home until the patient left the home mm -hmm. after their passing. And that might be at two o'clock mm -hmm. in the morning. And so the staff member, if it's required, would go out at two o'clock in the morning and would stay there until that patient leaves that home, until the, the funeral home mm -hmm. picks up the body and, and takes it. Yeah, and so sometimes that would cause um, angst of trying to get appointments, especially if that's the only person on, on for the night mm -hmm. and there's problems. But it's good to just be transparent and to um, communicate with the family as to why you're not gonna be there. But I know staffing is used as a common um, phrase, you know, we don't have the staffing for that. And I'm really frustrated and, and fatigued of hearing uh, mm -hmm. that there's our staffing issues. Many times at the hospital, we have a patient who wants to go home and they know they are critically ill and they can't, they can't go to home without having that extra help. Mm -hmm. They need that continuous care. Right. And this, the hospice tells us we can't staff for that. Yeah. And that, gets a little bit old for us. Some of these companies are smaller companies and they do want to provide that care, but they literally either cannot find those people or they literally cannot pay what those people need to be paid to have them on staff. So sometimes they say, it's just something that we don't have the capacity for. We don't have the ability to staff for that. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of chuckling and laughing because just listening to what you're saying, uh, Dr. Bowen, it brought up um, a memory that uh, there were some patients, um, I guess I would say when I had lesser boundaries or maybe <laughs> not so much clarity, I was a new, newer physician, but there were patients that family members would visit for the weekend, right? Like they flew in and they were like, we would love to meet you. So I would make visits on Saturday and I will never forget, I went to visit a patient and it doesn't matter whether he was affluent or not. But um, his, what uh, was interesting to me is that he had taken the weekend off to come see dad and he had a metastatic cancer that went to the bones and he was in severe pain. So he was on this continuous care that you're discussing. So I go there Saturday, you know, oh, I'm gonna make a quick visit. So I drop my daughter off at this birthday party and I figure, okay, it's birthday parties are two hours. I've got, I'm gonna run to see this patient and um, go back and grab my daughter. Well, boy, was I wrong. When I arrived at the patient's home, he was writhing in pain. The family was there and I said to the nurse, like I looked at my orders because I'd seen the patient the day before, um, why wasn't his 12 o'clock meds given? He got meds at eight and didn't get his 12 o'clock meds. It's now like 12.30, 12.45. And she's like, I'm not a nurse. And I'm like, what? This patient is on continuous level of care. I have them on med medications every 24 hours and I'm in the middle of a titration, which means it's imperative to have a nurse at the bedside. Mm -hmm. So I immediately call the hospice because I'm completely compassionate and passionate about my work. And they tell me, um, listen, we had all these people call out, like I have nobody to cover this patient. So 
I gave the patient the medication. Um, I tried not to act frustrated to the staff member because she was doing the best she could given the circumstances. And the bottom line of the whole story and what made me giggle when you were telling the story is I sat with the patient as a continuous care Yes. Yeah. And that happens. We just do what needs to be done to take care of the patient. Mm-hmm. And, and did you get back to pick up your daughter? <laughs> well, I got back to pick up my daughter, drop her back home, and then I went back, back to, the to the patient's patient. house. Yeah. So the patient was never alone for more than an hour. Yeah. And, and with continuous care, typically the care is provided by a registered nurse so that those titration orders can be followed. But it is acceptable by Medicare that some of those hours could be booked could be fulfilled by a social worker, by mm -hmm. a chaplain, uh, by an aide. Those people can't administer meds and then it's required for the family or another medical licensed individual, whether it's a nurse practitioner or a physician to go by. And I know that we've had to do that sometimes where we've had somebody in an assisted living facility that's not staffed by registered nurses that can do a titration and we have to have other staff members that can we can coordinate that and get that patient taken care of in a timely manner right. and compassionate way to get them the care that they need. I know that when we have new hires, it's really important for the new hires to have the same passion for compassion that we do. It's actually one of the more challenging jobs you'll ever face because these people are critically ill and potentially at risk of death at any time, and they don't want to go back to the hospital. And your responsibility is to manage them, not hasten the end of life, but to provide compassionate care for them that they can have the best quality of life for as long as they possibly can. So it's maybe not going to be the easiest job, but it may be one of the more challenging and more rewarding jobs that you've ever had. Exactly. And I think the point of it, the uh, point of Dr. Bone's comment is very true and stands true even today. Like even with my job now, I'm doing palliative, not strict hospice. I have some clinicians that are very open and willing to have the conversation of, of the goals of care conversation to help those patients transition to hospice services or more inclusive palliative program. But then there's others that just took this job to just say they have a job and you can see the difference in the in the care that in they the provide. Care. Dr. T and I are passionate about our compassion and we expect that from every team member. We have a zero tolerance level for it to the point where both of us have had career altering changes because we could no longer work for a particular company or in a particular mm -hmm. environment because the environment changed. As physicians, we are the captain of the ship and ultimately responsible for that care. However, the direction of the company and the executive director or bean counter or managers, you know, whatever you want to title that, but the authority from leadership is not always with us. And so if there's a misalignment of those goals from our goals to deliver the best care for every patient, we're not going to be able to work in that. I, I can't compromise my professional values, my personal ethics and morals, and my oath. I can't, I can't work in that environment. And so it's a real struggle for us internally if we're, you know, 
banging heads with administration mm -hmm. and we can't get them to budge to deliver better care. Yeah, it's funny that you say that. I have lots of stories that resonate with me um, that were career-altering experiences. But one of my um, more important things is I, I made the decision to become um, a hospice medical director of a startup, thinking that, okay, well, if I'm at the top, the, the highest doctor on the chain, then we'll have more say-so. And it, 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 it's really not the truth because, like Dr. Brown said, there is administration with every hospice organization. So you need to have a buy-in from them. Yeah. Um, but you know, there are a lot of things that I've learned by uh, hospice service failures in my career. Um, one, th you know, there's two things that pop in my head that I'd love to share with you. One of my, one of my very first experiences was um, in incorrectly signing a death certificate. And I was brand new doctor, maybe three months out. And I had this elderly man found my car in the parking lot, said he was going to smash all my windows. <laughs> and I was just like, oh my God, what did I do? What did I do? And it was a patient that I never had laid eyes on. And there was not a good sign out. And I, you know, looked at what I had for the chart and it wasn't a great chart and just put something very generic. And really I was affecting uh, life insurance policies and things of that nature. And from that point forward, that became one of my plights that I will always honor people's wishes with the death certificate. And honestly, when I'm the team physician, I try to have that conversation before the patient passes yeah. to figure out what, what, uh, what do you expect to be on that death certificate? Maybe there's mm -hmm. an insurance need for some reason that needs something that needs to go on that. Maybe it's a veteran with a service connection mm -hmm. and it may not be the cause of death that goes on the death certificate, but it certainly affected the death of the of the person so sometimes it is very advantageous to have that information ahead of time we don't get any money not a dollar not a cookie mm -hmm. not a candy bar not even a thank you for doing those death certificates and it's required by law in the state of florida that it's completed within 72 hours and that's regardless of holiday hurricane whatever it's required that it's done within 72 hours so to have that information ahead of time and if you think that for covid mm. that more money exchanges yes we get twice that we get two times zero now i'm not great with math but i'm pretty sure not times not is still not so we don't get and any reimbursement for filling out those death certificates but it's part of our passion to make sure that those things are done correctly because for religious purposes you don't want to delay the signature of the death certificate because some religions bury very quickly, um, some cremate, some do not. I mean, you have to just be so cognizant. So, you know, I, I have um, family that used to kind of giggle with me and make fun of me that I'm friends with funeral directors, but you do kind of become friendly with them because if you're not signing the death cert in a timely fashion, or if the patient's being transported to another state, they will reach out to you and, um, you know, try to expedite the process as quickly as possible. So I have become um, friendly with funeral directors. I've had to actually go to funeral homes to make that signature happen yeah. on the weekends, whatever it is after hours, because I think that that's really important. And um, like Dr. Brown says, we are so compassionate and passionate and empathetic that we don't want to be part of a service failure. Right. I don't want any part of a service failure. Yeah. Um, I hope that addresses the concern of, of one of our viewers. I really appreciate the 
the comment. I really appreciate the view. And I definitely admit that there are service failures with hospice sometimes. And that saddens and angers both Dr. T and myself about that. And all we can do is just keep doing our best every day. She and I only touch a, a small number of lives and those, whether that's a patient, whether that's family, whether that's peers and colleagues, nurses, but we do have a passion for compassion that we try to share and try to pass on with others. Yeah, and that's that was the whole premise of our channel, honestly, was it kind of stemmed from our, our service failures in our career yeah. and how we've become very passionate. And I think it's just incredible to have this audience yeah. um, and all these viewers. Thank you for listening um, because, and, and don't give up on the hospice. Even if you've had a failure, try it again. Yeah. And demand more from them. Mm -hmm. You can fire them. They're the easiest employee to fire. You just call them and tell them, I don't want your service anymore. Now, they want your money. But if there's another hospice in town, Go call that them. other hospice and tell them, hey, I'm getting hospice from, you know, ABC or Acme or whoever it is. And I want to tell you how I'm not happy with them. And I want to find out about your service. And they might eagerly come out and tell you how they can do a better job. And then with a stroke of a pen. You can fire these guys and hire those guys. Mm -hmm. You're not stuck with them. Yeah, so don't ever feel like just because you've had one bad experience that that's every experience. And you learn from every uh, failure, just like we said. You know, mm -hmm. you learn from it and be the advocate for your loved one because wouldn't you, wouldn't you want someone to die peacefully, comfortably? Because remember, we only die once. We only die once. Thank you for listening today. You can also find us on YouTube, channel name, You Only Die Once. If you have any specific questions you would like us to address, please feel free to send us an email at youonlydieoncedos at gmail.com. That's youonlydieoncedos at gmail.com. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you again soon.